Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you. It's great to see some of you are back for the first time in a year, which is crazy. Uh, it's weird. You've aged, but I haven't, which is strange. <clears throat> so, okay, just starting off, breaking the ice. But, uh, hey, uh, before I get into my talk, I know that many of you have seen, uh, already seen the video that we sent out last week, but I, I also know some of you haven't. And it's regarding our decision to make uh, our second service, second Sunday service, our 11 a.m. service into a non-mandatory uh, mask service starting next week. Sunday, March 21st. I'm not going to get into the details now, but uh, if you haven't seen that video, please go to vcdc.org, our website, and, and watch the video. It's got more information there. So, all right. We're three weekends away from Easter, and as we follow Jesus and his disciples through the gospel of Mark, things are really starting to, uh, to heat up. Uh, he rode into Jerusalem on a Sunday uh, he cleared out the temple, if you remember last weekend, on, on a Monday. And as you look at the Gospel of Mark on Tuesday and Wednesday, it's like chapters 12 and 13. He's uh, really, he's had being tested and asked all these questions by the religious leaders. Like, hey, by what authority are you doing all this stuff? Like, who do you think you are, Jesus? And, uh, and then uh, today, what we're going to be looking at, it, we're about halfway through the uh, chapter 14 of Mark. And now it's right around Thursday morning. And just imagine this, Jesus, I mean, imagine Jesus waking up Thursday morning, swings his legs over the sides, he's sitting in bed, and all of a sudden the reality of what day it is just sort of crashes on him like a wave. He's like, oh yeah, uh, you know, later today I'm, I'm going to be arrested by the temple guards. I'm going to be abandoned by all my friends. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be denied. Uh, uh, I'm going to be crucified, and, and later on Friday, I will be laid uh, lifeless in a tomb. Now, have you ever had a, you know, a morning or a, or a day when you, you, know, you looked at the calendar, or you looked at your schedule, and you thought, man, I got a tough day ahead today? Have you ever done this where you, knowing that you, you, know, you, you, you give yourself permission to kind of pamper yourself a bit, meaning I got a hard day, I'm going to sleep in. Like today, wouldn't it have been nice to sleep in a little bit? Uh, or I've got a hard day ahead, you know what, I'm going to skip my morning exercise routine. In fact, I'm going to take myself out for a really nice breakfast. In fact, I'm going to go buy a new car. You know, or whatever, whatever you would do to, you know, get yourself up for the challenge of the day. Now imagine Considering what Jesus had on his schedule for that day and for the next few days, I, I wouldn't have held it against him if he, if he took a little bit of me time, you know, uh, before stepping into all that. But, but knowing what was coming, what does, what does Jesus do? What does he do? John 13:1 says this, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. So what does he do? Knowing what was coming, Jesus decides, chooses to spend his last day, and what we're going to talk about today, his last supper. He chooses to spend that with his disciples, with his, with his friends. And, and again, it's knowing what was coming for him, but more importantly, knowing what was coming for them. Knowing that later that day, their worlds were just going to crumble. We're just going to fall apart. Knowing that Jesus 
uh, like the scripture says, chooses to love them, to care for them to the end. So we're going to be looking at the Last Supper today, um, but first let's pray, and then, and then we'll jump in. So Lord, I thank you uh, for your presence here. Lord, and I pray that we would never get used to that little prayer. I pray today that you would uh, just heighten our awareness of you. What's going to change us today is not my talk, it's not the songs, it's not, the, it's not even just being prayed for. What's going to change us today is you, your presence, you coming close. So we ask that you would do that. Just come have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, uh, again, in this series, we're, we're, uh, uh, we're moving through the second half of the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to be moving through chapter 14. And, and chapter four, 14 starts off uh, with a beautiful story where Mary, the, the sister of, of Martha and Lazarus, uh, does this thing. Uh, uh, she, she pours, she anoints, pours this beautiful perfume over Jesus, over his head. Very expensive perfume, you know, just beautiful smelling perfume. And, and, and we find out later in the story that what she did was really a prophetic act. That she was actually anointing Jesus for burial, which was soon to come. And in the story, if you're familiar with it, some of the disciples got all bent out of shape. And they rebuked Mary for doing that. Like, hey, what a waste. You could have sold that and, you know, given the money to the poor. And, and one of the main rebukers was the disciple named Judas Iscariot. We're going to talk a bit about Judas today. So we're going to take the story up right after that happened. So this is Mark 14, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb... Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Okay. Like many of the stories we're looking at in this series, we're going to find versions of them in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we know from the Gospel of Luke that the two disciples in this story that Jesus uh, chooses are Peter and John. And while in the story it takes like a, you know, a matter of words or a couple sentences for them to prepare this Passover meal... In actual fact, it would have taken these two guys most of the day to do the work. I mean, it would have started by dropping off at Whole Foods Jerusalem to, uh, you know, for bitter herbs and unleavened bread, you know, no yeast and fruit and different things. But then they also would have had to go uh, and, and get, purchase a one-year-old lamb with no defects. So that means checking the lamb facts. Oh, good, good. Very, okay, you're awake. Awesome. So, but just imagine, remember last weekend, Andrew talked about how on, on the day as they got into uh, a path towards Passover, there would be thousands of lambs sacrificed at the temple on that day. And this was the day. So we don't know how long it would have taken. They take this little guy, they go to the temple, and they have to wait in line. There's thousands of people are getting their lambs sacrificed for Passover, for the meal. And so Peter and John wait, and once that's done, they take the lamb and all their groceries, and they go back to the meeting place, and they start cooking and preparing, etc. 
And I said earlier that Jesus, uh, 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 that soon Jesus would be arrested, would be abandoned, tried, etc., etc. But before any of that can happen, the, what has to happen first <clears throat> is he needs to be betrayed. So number one in your notes is the king is betrayed. And uh, right off the top, spoiler alert, the one who betrays is Judas, uh, Judas Iscariot. And in what I read, notice that Judas goes to the religious leaders and offers to betray Jesus to them. And they're like, awesome, well, you know, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver. And, And then it says this of Judas in verse 11, it says, so he, so Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, Jesus knew this. He knew what Judas was up to. He knew that Judas was watching for the, like the right time and the right place to, to betray Jesus, to give him up. And so because Jesus, knowing that, also wanting to spend this last day, this last supper with his disciples, <clears throat> notice how cryptic, how cryptic Jesus is in answering the question of where to go and prepare the Passover meal. Because I sort of picture it like this. You know, Peter or John goes, hey, you know, Jesus, where do you want us to go and prepare this meal? And I, what I picture is, is Judas, looking for the right time and place, leans in, you know, ready to write down the address. And Jesus is like, oh, go to 724 Mephibosheth Lane, right? And, but that's not what he says, is it? What he says really is like this, it's really like a spy code instructions, right? That he gives these two uh, disciples, which I'm assuming he totally prearranged it all. And Judas is like, oh, rats, you know, uh, I have to look for another time. So Jesus knew what Judas was up to. In fact, Jesus always knew that Judas would betray him. And I find that amazing because, you know, if you look early on in the ministry of Jesus back in the, I think it's in Luke 6, where it says Jesus went up on the mountain for the whole night to pray. He just goes off on his own just to talk with his father. And one of the things he's talking with his father about is, who do I pick? I got all these people following. Who do I pick as as the twelve? And think about that. And we know he's praying about that because the first thing he does in the morning is he gathers all his followers and he picks the 12 disciples. And that's crazy to me. He prayerfully picked Judas <clears throat> knowing, knowing what Judas would do. It actually was prophesied that he would be betrayed. Uh, Psalm 41.9 says this, Even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my bread has turned against me. And so as the story progresses, you know, all the preparations for the Passover meal are made. And then it continues this way in verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, meaning Jesus is going to die the way it was written that he would die. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So now we're getting into the Last Supper. And there's a famous painting by uh, Leonard da Vinci. Uh, Why don't we throw that picture up? We're all familiar with this, right? Now this is a beautiful picture. Uh, but it's totally inaccurate of how that meal would have been. Let me, this is what it would have been like. I'm going to do some role playing here. I might need help getting up because I'm pretty old. But so this is how it would have been in, in the Middle East, right? They would have been a low table like Ikea, Farfenfrina, the, the table you can get at, uh, 
at Ikea, and they would have been leaning on their left shoulder, like leaning in on the table, and their feet, stinky feet probably, would have been out the back. And Jesus is the host of the Passover, so he's like right here. And, and in the place of honor is Judas, the one who be, would betray him. He's like right there, and like Jesus can just lean back. And, and right here is John, right, right near the heart of Jesus. <clears throat> just think of how intimate that would be. It would be kind of a nice way to eat. It's like, they all, it's like living the dream. You eat, fall asleep, wake up. You eat, fall asleep. It's like, it's, does it get any better, right? But so in this really, really intimate setting, they're eating, and all of a sudden Jesus goes, hey, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. Like, can you imagine just the, the uh, emotional <laughs> that would have happened when he said that? And, and in some of the other gospels, you know, they, they actually say more. They cover more of the conversation around the betrayal. And, <clears throat> and as the disciples are saying, me, is it me? And it's sort of going around the room. Peter looks over, you know, at, at John, who's right near the heart of Jesus. And he goes, hey, ask him. Ask him, who, who is it? Who, who's the betrayer? And so, you know, John leans back, Lord, who, who is it? And Jesus says this in John 13. He, <clears throat> Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. That's the prophecy. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. Like, that is intense. And you know what gets me? Like, we look at that and we go, like, isn't it obvious who the betrayer is? Like, he, he just dipped the bread and et cetera, et cetera. But you know, the story says that the disciples still didn't get it. They still didn't understand who the betrayer was. In fact, they thought, Jesus saying, you know, what you're about to do, do quickly. They thought, because Judas was the, carried the purse, like the money uh, for the group. They thought, it was like, hey, go pay the bill quickly. Like they didn't know, but, and you know, when I look at this story, I find it so interesting in the story of Judas and his betrayal that there's different beliefs around the question of, did this guy, Judas, have a choice in the matter? Was he always destined to be the betrayer or did he actually have a choice uh, in, in doing that or not doing that? And, you know, I really believe what some of the commentators I read this week, I believe he did have a choice. And I believe that a lot of the conversation, and in one of the other Gospels, there's, there's actually conversation between Jesus and Judas, where Judas says, oh, not I, Lord. Can you imagine that interaction? Where, where I believe G Jesus was giving him the opportunity to change his mind. Like, I'm going to die. That's, I am going to die, but you don't have to be the betrayer. But he does. And so why, knowing what he would do, why, why would Jesus choose Judas? Why would he do that? Well, first of all, he, would, he did it because it was prophesied. It was prophesied. I remember a couple weeks ago I said that one of the things we see in the life of Jesus is he was very purposeful to fulfill the prophecies about him. Meaning, you know, all these prophets in the Old Testament speaking the word of God saying the Messiah is going to come one day and he's going to look like this and he's going to act like this and this is how he's going to die and this is how he's going to be betrayed. So one of the reasons Jesus did it is, you know, God is the God of his word. If he said he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And so part of it, the reason why he chose Judas was because it was prophesied. But then there's, there's a lot we can learn from the story of Judas. One is God is able to make good out of evil. I mean, think of this. This is like the ultimate betrayal, right? Betrayed with a kiss, right? The ultimate betrayal of a, of a friend. And, and in the story, what is God doing? God is using the evil actions of now Judas, but later you're going to have a bunch of people's evil actions towards Judas. He's using the evil towards him to really accomplish his greatest work. And it's very Romans 8, 28 that, you know, God works all things. Now, I can't remember it. And God works all things. 
for good according to those who, yeah. You know what I'm saying, boy, oh boy. Oh man, my Yelp review just went down, didn't it? Look it up, I should have written it, written it down. But, but all, what I'm saying is God is able to take something ugly and painful and he's able to make it into something that's beautiful and life-giving. We can also learn that God knows what it's like to be wounded by a friend. Like, have you ever had the experience of going through a really hard, painful thing, and then you meet someone who's also walked that road? And there is such a unique uh, connection and comfort when you're talking to someone who's like, oh, yeah, I know that pain. Ooh, I know that. See, one of the beauties of this is we have a God, as great as he is, who gets it. We have a God who knows what it's like to be wounded by a friend, to be betrayed by someone close to you, to be, you know, like think of all that Jesus went through. Like when you go to God, know that you go to someone who understands the pain of this, of this life. So there's lots that we can learn from Judas. There are also warnings to be taken from the story of Judas. One of the warnings is just to be around God and his activity is not enough to change your life. Like this is amazing to me. Think about this. <clears throat> Judas hung out with Jesus. Judas was like right there when Jesus was doing all his amazing miracles. Like he was front row, you know, front row seat for all this crazy stuff. Judas, like all the other disciples, was sent out two by two, given authority and power to go out and heal the sick and cast out demons. Judas would have laid his hands on sick people and seen them healed. He would have cast demons out of people. He would have done all that. He would have seen all that. And yet his heart was still very far from Jesus. The story shows that. Like throughout the Gospels, you see the other disciples declaring, you see the other disciples declaring their belief about Jesus in what they call him. Like you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Lord. You are my King. You are my God. All these, all these statements by the disciples declaring that you are who you say that you are as the King. But you know what? The one time that Judas talks to Jesus, you know what Jesus, uh, Judas calls him? He calls him rabbi. I just find that very interesting. Rabbi means teacher. Could it be that Judas, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a good hunch that, or a good chance <clears throat> that he saw Jesus not as God, not as who he said he was, but just as a good teacher. And see, just to be around those things isn't enough to change you. Like, it's, it's not enough just to go to church and be around churchy things. It's not enough just to know the, the churchy language and routines. It's not enough just to have religious trinkets and pictures and coffee mugs in your house and stickers on our cars and crosses around our necks. I mean, those are all wonderful things, but they are not enough. In the Christian life, we all have to come to a point of, like the disciples, of bowing down and saying, you are who you say that you are. And because you're the king of all kings, I submit my life to you. I let go as best I can of the control of my life, and I say, you take control. You are God. You're the king. You're my Lord. And, and so it's not enough just to be around it. There has to be that, that, that declaration and submission to who he is, and that's where we find change. Final warning is the deceptive power <clears throat> of the love of money. And, you know, the life of Judas demonstrated that he loved money more than he loved Jesus. 
First Timothy 6, 9 says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I mean, Judas's love for money, hey, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver to betray the Son of God. Sounds like a good deal. Like his love for money, think about this, actually blinded him. His greed blinded him to who was right in front of him. After all that he saw, he still didn't clue in that this was the Son of God. He was blinded by his greed and his hunger for money. And you know what? It can be the same for us. Especially in a culture where we are so obsessed with money and stuff and comfort and all, and all the goodies. I mean, we, we need to ask God. It's like a Psalm 51 prayer. We need to ask God on a regular basis, search me. Search me, God, and search me and show me. Like, is there anywhere in my life that I am being sucked into loving money or anyone or anything else more than you? Because if I am, that's a dangerous place. And we see that warning in, in the life of Judas. So, so in the story, off, you know, it actually says in John that Judas goes out into the night to betray Jesus, which is so fitting. And then the story switches gears. And after Judas leaves, Jesus continues now to lead the rest of the disciples in the annual, very familiar to them, Passover meal. But uh, Jesus adds a twist. Verse 22. <clears throat> While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, in what we just read, I, I purposely underlined two sections because they should remind us of something we do a lot. Just the language of take, this is my body. Take, this is my blood. That's familiar, right? That's communion. When we take communion, communion language. In this story, Jesus really is instituting the first communion. And for us today, when we take communion, it is something we do, something we're going to do in a little bit here. It's something that we do as followers of Jesus to remember, to remember, well, really, to remember what was accomplished on the cross. When he, you know, when, when the bread representing symbolic of his body broken, you know, him taking the punishment that we deserved. Or, or the cup, the juice, symbolic of his blood that's poured out, his life given so that we could be forgiven. So that we could be washed clean of all, of all our sins. So for, so for us, we, you know, we're looking back and remembering. But just you know, imagine, in the, in the story, Jesus is speaking about an event that has not yet happened. So, so in the story, he wasn't reminding the disciples. He was actually teaching them something new. So the second point and the final point is the king is the lamb. The king is the lamb. And you know, earlier, uh, two weeks ago, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, he revealed himself to the world that, yes, I am the long-awaited Messiah. And, and, and yes, I am the long-awaited king. Yes, I am the long-awaited deliverer. Come to set you free. And now in this story, he was now going to show them how he was going to set them free. And again, it was not going to be through military strength. And so as the host 
of the Passover meal, uh, it was Jesus who, would, who led them through the key symbolic parts of the meal. And if uh, you're familiar or maybe not familiar, the, the Passover meal, uh, they're pointing back to something that happened way back in, in, the, in the book of Exodus, uh, way back in the Old Testament where the Israelites, remember the story, they were in captivity, they were enslaved by the Egyptians, and God sent uh, Charlton Heston, he sent Moses, uh, that's, some of the room will be like, what are you talking about? But, <clears throat> okay, just reaching out. But, but God sends Moses with a message. Moses goes up before Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds with, no, I, I won't let your people go. And, and so God starts to uh, punish the Egyptians with multiple plagues. And, uh, and then in Exodus 12, God prepares to send the final plague uh, on the country, on the, on the land of, of Egypt. And, but before he does that, first he instructs the Israelites uh, regarding a new annual festival that he wants them to add to their calendar. And it's the Festival of Unleavened Bread. It's a one-week festival. And, uh, and part of that festival is the Passover, which is one night where they have a meal. And uh, the people are told in Exodus uh, to pick a one-year-old lamb with no defect uh, and, and to, to, to slaughter that lamb, sacrifice that lamb, and to smear the blood, right? Remember that? On the, on the doorposts of their house. And then they roast the lamb, and they, you know, and they eat the lamb and the herbs and the bread, etc. But, but the interesting thing is they were told, now you need to eat this meal, like with your coat on and your shoes on. Like you need to eat the meal ready to go. Because in the original story, this was the night, Passover night was the night when God was going to set them free from the, their captivity in Egypt. And so, you, you know, eat this meal, but be ready to hit the road. And so when I look at that, I, you know, a lot of it makes sense to me about the meal and being ready to go. But like, what's up with painting the blood of the lamb on the door frame? Like, why on that night would God ask them to do that? Well, remember, on that night, God would be sending his final plague on the land of Egypt. And the blood on the door was super important for the Israelites. God said this in Exodus 12. God said, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you in the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Egypt. Now this is super important. God is bringing judgment on the land of Egypt. And the only thing keeping that judgment from falling on the Israelites as well. The only thing, the only thing that would cause that judgment to pass over the Israelites was what? It was the blood. It was the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorposts, right? <clears throat> Tim Keller said this, the only way to escape was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. Namely, you had to slay a lamb and put the blood on the doors as a sign of your faith in God. In every home that night, there would be there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. And so, you know, back in the story, the, you know, the host is leading them through all these things that are pointing back to this night. And, and the host would literally interpret the, the foods that they were eating. And they would, you know, they would remind the people, like, remember the unleavened bread that, you know, no yeast, this flat bread reminds us that we were, we were home of our homelessness and our wandering in the desert. The bitter herbs recalled the, just the bitterness of slavery and uh, the fruit, the stewed fruit, this was interesting, by its color and consistency recalled the misery of making bricks for Pharaoh. And of course, 
Of course, the lamb. The lamb brought to their remembrance the sacrificed lamb and its blood applied to the wood of the doorframe, causing the judgment of God, really like this death angel, to, to pass over them. And throughout the meal, at different points, they would have a communal cup of wine that they would pass around. And each of these four cups represented a promise from God. Uh, one is rescue, his promise to rescue from Egypt, freedom from slavery, redemption by God's divine power, and for renewed relationship with God. And you can check those. That's in Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7. And in the story, it was at the time of that third cup when they're, you know, they're celebrating and reminding the disciples of God's redemptive power to rescue and protect them from judgment through the blood of the Lamb that Jesus whoo, throws a curveball. And, you know, and really, Jesus departs from the known familiar script. And instead of pointing now you know, to remember this, what the Lamb represents, etc., instead of pointing to that historical Lamb, Jesus, through the bread and the cup, points to himself says this in verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, again, these guys would have had many Passover meals, right? So, so much of it was routine, and they probably would have taken the bread, taken their piece, passed it around. They probably would have taken the cup, taken a sip, passed it around before they really clued into, wait a minute, he just changed the script. Right? Like, like wait, 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 the bread? What, this, this represents your body? What, what the cup repre represents your blood? I thought we were remembering the, that other lamb. I thought we were remembering the lamb of the story. I thought we were remembering the, the lamb's blood. And I wonder... If some of the disciples, looking at all this, taking this all in, thought back to the first time they met Jesus, where they're sitting with John the Baptist, and Jesus is walking up, and John the Baptist, remember this? He stands up, and he points, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And I wonder if the disciples, you know, it's sort of like the pennies are dropping, and they're like, wait a minute. Are you saying that this Passover story all this time, are you saying this is talking about you? Is this all pointing to you, Jesus? Is this how you're going to save us? Not by raising up an army, but by laying down your life? Like, have you come not just freeing us from the oppression of the Romans, have you come to free us from the judgment of God? One more Keller quote. He says, Jesus is saying that all the earlier deliverances, the earlier sacrifices, the lambs at Passover were pointing to himself. Just as the first Passover was observed the night before God redeemed the Israelites from slavery through the blood of the lambs, this Passover meal was eaten the night before God redeemed the world from sin and death through the blood of Jesus. And the disciples were like, wait a minute. So the king, the king is the lamb. The king is the lamb. And, and, and the battle he's come to fight is not a military one. He's come to fight a spiritual Really well-known verse, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, very good. But the gift of God is, and how do we get that? Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, you know, in our increasingly politically correct world, it is very unpopular to say that we're all sinners. On our own, we are all sinners. We are all guilty of sin on our own. 
We are all enslaved by sin. And, and it's, like it's, it's like it's unpopular to say that, but don't we all know that's true? You just look at the news, you just look around your community, you look at work, you look around your neighborhood, you look around your home, you look in the mirror, and you know it's true. All our addictions and struggles and the broken relationships and all the ways we just can't, you know, we just can't control ourselves. And, and you know, and, and our sinfulness, that sinfulness puts us under God's very just judgment. So, you know, a good question would be, what are you depending on to protect you? What are you depending on? <clears throat> what's going to come between you and God that he will, you know, in his judgment? What will call, you know, what are you putting your trust in to, to protect you from the judgment of God? Like, is, is, is your hope in your performance, like, I just, well, if I can just get it together, if I can just stop doing this, right? If I can just live a good life, whatever that looks like. If I can just, you know, whatever it is, improve in these areas. Or, or like in the story, will you instead put your trust in God's provision to protect you? Because, like, just imagine in this story being told that God's judgment, like a, a death angel, was going to come over the land. And the only thing, the only thing between you and that was a little lamb, the blood of a little lamb smeared on the doorframe. Like, could you imagine? You're one of the Israelites, and you've got your family gathered around, and it's night, and I mean, I don't know if they heard it, but if it was a movie, they would. This, you know, this, this angel's going through Egypt, and you're sitting there looking at your family thinking, looking at your oldest, thinking, is that going to be enough? How on earth can that be enough? And do you know, do you know why it was enough in the story? It was because God said it was enough. And do you know why it still is enough? Because God Looking at Jesus says, it is enough. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift, this gift is received through Jesus. God sees his blood smeared on the wood of the cross. And when he sees that, when he sees what Jesus did, his perfect performance, not ours, when he sees what his, what his son did, he looks at that, and the judgment of God passes over us. See, that's why the story of the Bible is called the good news. Because it really is good news. Listen, one more quote, I lied. One more Keller quote. The gospel, the good news is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at this very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the good news. Why, why don't we stand up? We're going we're gonna to go back into worship. <clears throat> And uh, at the end of worship, uh, Derek Kurtzney, one of our small group leaders, is going to come and lead us in communion. So if you didn't grab the little cup uh, and the little wafer on top, or if you need a gluten-free one, there's gluten-free ones there, and I think there's donuts. Oh, no, there's not. <clears throat> but if you didn't grab it, grab it now. Grab it during worship. But let's worship, and, and then let's get ready to really to remember and celebrate what we've been talking about, that good news. So, so let's, let's worship. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.